Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Genoa Osei Tutu, Associate Professor of Law at Florida International University College of Law. We will discuss her article, Socially Responsible Corporate Intellectual Property, which will be published in the Vanderbilt Journal of Entertainment and Technology Law. So welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be joining you this afternoon. Uh, I'm I'm happy to have you, and it was a real pleasure reading your paper, which I think is a really um, interesting next step in a kind of a range of of scholarship you've done on on related related issues. Uh, and I was wondering if if you could start out the 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 this interview by by talking a little bit about corporate social responsibility. Sort of what is it? And and how does it differ from the prevailing view of of corporate governance? Um, okay, well, so uh, I should start out by saying that I'm I'm primarily an intellectual property scholar, not uh, any kind of expert in corporate social responsibility per se. But uh, I was looking at corporate social responsibility here in this particular context. Um, with respect to international IP and looking at the corporate social responsibility model um, that's based on the, the sort of the Ruby report and the idea that even if corporations are not bound by international human rights um, obligations in the way that states are, that they have some obligation even if it's more of a moral obligation to uh, respect human rights, to protect um, the human rights of individuals and to remedy any human rights abuses where those do occur. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of literature, there's a lot of CSR literature and, and there are different um, definitions of CSR, but the way I defined it uh, for the purposes of this paper was basically that, you know, where you're having um uh, some sort of more of a moral obligation to do something beyond what the law requires. Mm, mm. So, I mean, it's my understanding that the sort of prevailing definition of corporate governance is that you know corporate managers should maximize shareholder profits at all at all costs. That to be kind of a, a caricature about it. Is is am I right in understanding that CSR is sort of trying to compl complicate or add something different to that kind of conception of corporate governance? Yeah, I think so. That goes back to this old debate, actually, that I was um, looking at recently. You know, about whether corporations are um, completely amoral and whether their only obligation is basically to make as much money as they can for their um, shareholders, which I, which is sort of the prevailing approach right now, although this idea that corporations have some sort of some sort of social obligation is not a new one. So um, there, there, there are old stories of abuses or practices that corporations engaged in that people found offensive. So even, you know, when it comes to encouraging uh, mothers on the African continent some decades ago to give their babies um, the formula instead of to, to nurse them, um, things like that. So it's not as though it's new, the idea of, of corporations have some sort of having some sort of social obligation, but it's not the, the prevailing approach, which is, 
if that's what you're getting at, then yes, it's, it's different in that respect. It's looking at, it's broadening what corporations might need to think about or should think about in terms of what are their goals and their objectives mm, and their responsibilities. Mm. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and in, in your paper, you made a distinction that jumped out at me and I, I I was I wasn't quite sure whether it was it seemed like it was something important but I wasn't quite sure. And so you, you made a distinction between protecting human rights and respecting human rights and was I right to see those as not necessarily being identical? Um yeah, so the idea that um you respect human rights is um as opposed to put protecting human rights. I guess there's, there's a slight distinction there in the sense that um, you, in protecting human rights, you would perhaps take more positive steps, I would say, perhaps mm. than respecting human rights. Um, I'm not sure if that is an important obligation in the sense that, um, or, or maybe you're getting to, to the point that, you know, we say that states have to protect the human rights that's a, because with these human rights um, instruments I should actually step back a moment states are the ones that sign international agreements states are the ones that take on international obligations not the corporations and so that's where we'd say that where there's a legal obligation at international law we're saying states have that obligation and so I, I guess the distinction that's being drawn there and it's a question that is still somewhat open, um, but the idea being that states are the ones that have the obligation to protect human rights and to ensure that um, the human rights of their, their citizens are protected and respected, but that corporations might still have an obligation to respect those human rights, but they don't, they're not the ones that have signed on to any international legal instrument. They're not the ones that hold the obligation at international law. Um, and I do say that question is somewhat open because some scholars have said that corporations still have a duty to the community, and that's where we might find a legal hook for corporations. But so that, mm. that's the distinction there that's being made. In some ways, it seemed like the concept of respecting human rights was like even like broader or encompassed more of like a a duty to be thoughtful about the context in which you're acting and not just kind of seeing it as a kind of discrete responsibility of one kind or another? Um, I mean, I guess the thing is, I can respect your human rights as an individual, so I have to maybe refrain from certain actions so I don't, I don't um, cause you harm, for instance. Mm. Um, whereas the state may have the obligation to protect your human rights because you are their 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 citizen i don't know uh, does that make sense yeah no that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense in the way that you're saying in the sense that you might not be the one that is supposed to take on that um legal obligation but you know it's not i don't know i'm not sure that it's core did you think that that was something that's that was very important in the in the project. I'm wondering where you where you're going with that. Well, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I mean, and 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 I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, your your response makes a lot of sense. That it's like maybe not a key dis distinction, but that it does seem like 
it's a different way perhaps to think about how some of these obligations might be cashed out in the private rather than public context. But I think that's a distinction that we would tend to make is more that the state has this obligation to um, make sure that they protect your human rights. Whereas, um, you know, the corporation can respect human rights. I think I might've given an example in the paper um, Mm. about them having respect for human rights by, for instance, having, uh, you know, instituting certain labor standards, even if they're not required to do that by law. To me, that would be an example of having respect for human rights um, as a corporation. So how would this, how does this work then in, in the context of intellectual property? I mean, as you, as you point out in the paper, uh, intellectual property is supposed to be all about generating public benefits. So why would there be issues with responsibility and respecting human rights in that context? Yeah. And so, um, it's actually quite interesting because I think the same way that, um, with corporate governance, you're making the point earlier that we think of the main obligation as being the obligation to the shareholder. Uh, I think we tend to forget that in intellectual property, there is this public benefit that's supposed to occur. And there tends to be a focus, um, I would argue, within international IP law, and then it trickles into domestic IP law. It tends to be a focus on the economic incentive for the right holder uh, on the profit generation model. And so um, basically, you have when we have these international obligations and you have an obligation, for instance, I'll just take the most um, common sort of case that people can easily understand. If you have a a patent and you have the patent over a medicine and somebody wants access or needs access for health purposes, um, you know, we have this obligation to protect the patent right under these international agreements and the claim to have access to the medicine might be more of a claim based on the right, the human right to health. Um, but what you find is that in these international models that the economic regimes, so the trade regime, for instance, or the investment regimes tend to have um, more force and more sway than the human rights um, type of approach. And so public benefit, the public interest is um, something that is seen almost as or I, I would suggest that it tends to be seen more as the exception to the rule of protection in favor of the owner of the intellectual property. And and you gave a, I thought, a really interesting example of that in a patent context, which I had previously been un, unfamiliar with. And now I'm really intrigued to learn more, which was the situation of the Lilly company in Canada objecting to what they saw as at least changes in Canadian patent law that invalidated some of their patents, which then they were litigating on the international stage, which honestly, I didn't even realize was really an an option. Um, Talk a little bit about how that played out and sort of why you thought that was such a good example, why you correctly thought that it was such an interesting example for the perspective you were bringing to the table. So um, the Eli Lilly case, and actually it's Cynthia Ho who has written quite, Cynthia Ho has written quite a lot about this. So 
um, you, you, I think you've summarized the, the, the case quite well, right? That there was a change in Canadian patent law invalidating the patent. And I believe the, the drugs were new use, uh, the patents were new use patents. Um, the, the, for me, the interesting part of this question, the interesting part of the Eli Lilly issue is that you had a corporation challenging a government seeking damages in the amount of $500 million dollars. Um, because the 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 law had evolved such that the patents were correctly under Canadian law invalidated, so you would basically be you'd basically end up with a situation where a private corporation is attempting to assert the rights in a way that puts a chill on the ability of the government to evolve its policy, um, effectively is challenging the courts and what's being done in, in a domestic system, and in, in many ways, um, you know, seeking to remove this, uh, I would say, legitimate domestic control. So it's not as though there was an abuse of power or anything like that, but they said this was an expropriation of their intellectual property, an, expropri- an expropriation of their investment. Um, and of course, you want to make sure corporations are protected from governments just taking their property without compensation. But this was an interesting case because this had gone through the courts and the courts had looked at this and said, yeah, these patents are are no longer valid. Um, And so this is Canada, which is, you know, a pretty well-resourced country. But if you think about what this would mean if it it were a small developing country that Mm. um, was trying to do something or if their courts had, you know, legitimately made some change or the law had evolved and then this major multinational corporation comes and says, no, you can't do that because this is our investment um, and we want you now, small country, to pay us, it's it's actually quite a threat for uh, small developing countries, just as it is a threat for any nation, right? So mm. the cases, the examples I gave in the paper involved Canada and Australia, and, and I deliberately focus on these ones in part because these are some of the cases that come out, but because... I think it's important to remember that this issue of um, public benefit and social responsibility and how these how IP rights are being managed is an important issue for all countries. So I might have answered the question with more than you asked me for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so do you think the court in the Eli Lilly case reached the right result for the right reason? And and I also wonder, like, what lessons do you think that international courts? in general, should take away from those circumstances? Because I I can't help but wonder, kind of based on your previous observations, that, you know, a country with less available funds than Canada might find it very difficult to defend its own ability to sort of make policy decisions about the scope of patent rights in the way that Canada did. Well, and so I think this actually gets to the heart of why I thought let's look at the corporations and their responsibilities because you know when you focus on what the courts do in terms of the technicalities of the legal argument you might win you might lose in any particular instance right but I think that the the question is not just did the court get it right which I think it Mm. it was correct I mean there was not the, the law had evolved there was some slight change and the patents were invalidated but the more important point is think about 
all that was invested in terms of the the time, the resources that were redirected towards this litigation, um, the threat that was hanging over the, the government's head. Um, and it's not as though the courts in Canada are controlled. It's not, this is, you know, not a country where the government's controlling everything, right? It's not mm. that kind of situation. Um, so I actually think that my attention is more directed towards the actions of the corporations. And I think that is where it has to start. I think a lot of international IP, we have focused on the, and correctly so, because the regime is relatively new, sort of I'm focusing on talking about the WTO um, IP agreement, the TRIPS agreement, which came about in 1994, which is not that old for an international agreement. Um, but we've tended to focus on what do these agreements say, how do the courts interpret these things, and um, what can the institutions do, when really a lot of it comes back to how do the corporations decide to conduct themselves, and what do they decide to do, what, how do they decide to pursue and enforce their intellectual property obligations. Because I can answer the question based on the technicalities and what courts should do. Well, courts have to follow the law, right? Mm. Um, did Did these companies have to pursue um, this litigation. And if you say their goal is to maximize shareholder profit, that and that's all they're supposed to be focusing on, then I guess, yeah, maybe they should pursue it. But I'm saying that maybe that's not all that they should be focusing on, right? They are the majority holders of intellectual property. Corporations, multinational corporations uh, and companies in general own most of the intellectual property that is out there. And so hmm. I'm saying that they have an obligation to manage it in a way that is socially responsible um you fo- you you picked up the eli Lilly case i think the australia case to me mm. um is particularly interesting because that's a question of the government trying to protect the public health of its population by decreasing smoking um and a private corporation attempting to protect its trademark right and again they litigated domestically they they sought this uh, you know sought to have this addressed in various tribunals they went to the world trade organization and they they just kept going and going um and then they they eventually lost right the the in the, mm. in the australia cigarette uh dispute so, yeah it, sorry no go ahead i was gonna say i mean i, I I thought that that example was really good because I took it that you you suggested that in the Philip Morris, Morris case that the company may actually have had a stronger argument that it was in the right to assert its trademark interests or its ability to use its mark in particular ways, even under Australian law or under international agreements to which Australia was a party, but that regardless, it shouldn't have asserted those rights, even though maybe it was legally in the right to do so. Am I right in in, in that characterization? Yeah, I mean, so I guess, again, you know, for me, it comes down to maybe you have, yes, they might, they have a trademark. Yes, they were being prevented from using their trademarks in the way that they wanted to. And so you could say if their obligation is to their shareholders, then pursue your IP rights, try to enforce your IP rights uh, vigorously. Now, I'm arguing that, yes, protect your IP rights, yes, enforce your IP rights, but stop and think for a moment about what is the benefit to the public and how you are managing your IP in a way that is responsible. So let me just say that 
Um, you know, Brian, you mentioned earlier on about the whole idea that there's this benefit to the public. So we give this this time limited protections. You know, when we're talking about trademark um, patents and copyrights, you get give a time limited protection for trademark and uh, for patent and copyright in particular. We have this whole idea that you're supposed to be disseminating knowledge and promoting progress. Um, and even trademark, there's the idea that you have this consumer efficiency. So there's some benefit to the public. Um, with trademark in terms of the consumer efficiency, copyright the the knowledge at the knowledge and creative works that are produced and disseminated, and with patents the uh, new technologies, the inventions that are subsequently disclosed and then available for everyone to use once the patent has expired. So we have this built into the IP system, um, and so the idea that you might think about what is the public benefit when you're managing your IP, I think, is not. Um, completely foreign. Um, in the Philip Morris case, the reason why I thought that they might have approached things differently is that they lost the case after fighting for so long to have their trademarks um, on the cigarette packaging, came out looking like these bad corporate citizens, and then had to shift in any event to ad promote themselves as good corporate citizens and, and redirect from um, I guess just from the, the, the standard cigarettes to um, smoke-free, a whole smoke-free future. Um, mm. So it's not as though they didn't have to make the shift at some point, and no one's saying that corporations shouldn't be able to make money, but think about what is it that the public is getting. So we want to make sure that people are, um, you know, the, the Australian government case, they're trying to make sure people understood the health risks of smoking with graphic horrendous photos mm. um, and that's a legitimate interest for a, a, a nation to to have um, why should it be controlled by a corporate um, wealth making um, objective why does it so that's really where I'm getting at yeah and that and that and it made a lot of sense to me because it seems like you know even if you're looking at the Philip Morris situation from a sort of traditional shareholder wealth maximization position i mean at the end of the day it seems like the actions that they took were kind of short-sighted in the sense that like kind of pennywise pound foolish exactly. you know think about the long-term interests of the corporation and maybe the long-term interests of the corporation are tied to the long-term interests of society well, absolutely, Brian. Absolutely. You've said, you put it very well. Um, and that is part of the idea behind this corporate social responsibility, right? That's one of the arguments is that the, the interests of the corporation are aligned with the interests of the society when you're thinking about having a healthy, productive population that actually can continue to um, consume whatever it is the corporation is producing. So I, I, I thought the copyright examples you gave were especially interesting as well because there you really described a situation where it seems like the corporations in question were entirely within their rights as a matter of law to do what they did. And yet it, it seems like that there was something disrespectful in their actions that, you know, like – sort of like this idea that like just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something mm -hmm. and that maybe companies ought to think about the social context in which they're acting and how to be more engaged with the people who are impacted 
by their commercial activity. Is that, that fair? Yes. And I think, you know, actually, um, you know, it's maybe two things that I'm thinking that corporations or two things that I'm suggesting that corporations might need to do in terms of acting in a social respons- socially responsible manner. So on the one hand, the cases that we've just discussed where I'm saying, well, yeah, you have some IP right, but you don't need to pursue it um, and enforce it to that extent because it's it doesn't make sense when we think about the broader social impact. The other side of it is we might not have intellectual property protection for certain um, types of works. And so just because they're out there and they're considered to be public domain doesn't mean you have to take them and use them for profit. Um, and those are more the copyright examples. So I think that you're referring to the the Adinkra symbol, so the, from mm. Atlanta, where um, you had certain symbols that uh, represent different things and uh, that are cultural symbols. And so they're not necessarily commercial symbols because commercial symbols we know are protected by trademark law. And so um, the the symbols ended up on a, a bag uh, produced by a company in the United States. Um, and, you know, I know some Ghanaians saw them and went, what, what is this? But the law, I mean, technically it was completely legal because the symbols are too old, so they're not protected by copyright. The symbols are not um, geographical indications relating to Ghana. The symbols are not being used as trademarks by somebody else. And so the the U.S. company was free to take them and reproduce them, um, which might be technically legally acceptable because we don't have protection for what we consider cultural, intangible cultural heritage um, and traditional knowledge which is a whole other area that, um, you know, really is about respect, having respect um, and engaging with communities in a way that is equitable and fair. Um, and so, it, it, again, it, I think the, the CSR model lends itself nicely to that. So the law isn't there, right? What the companies did was legally acceptable, but if we think about it from a, a social responsibility model, we might take a different approach and ask if try to find out, say, the symbol belongs to XYZ group, we'd like to reproduce it, just just to be more collaborative and respectful in the in the conduct. And and, and you, you mentioned the Louis Vuitton and okay. example with the Maasai cloth, and it seemed like a very similar kind of situation where it wasn't an underlying kind of copyrighted asset or copyrightable asset that they were were using in their commercial line, and yet people felt like it was disrespectful to uh, society uh, in in the way that it was actually being used, right? Yeah. And I, yes, that's correct. And I think that these are really complex issues and there's not a straightforward answer. I do understand on the one hand that you don't want to tie up culture, which is the argument around that. But there is on the other hand, the idea that what is treated as being part of the public domain um, tends to come from certain communities that are mm. uh, marginalized or uh, economically disadvantaged. And there's so many stories, one could go on and on. But for the Maasai, the question became, when Louis Vuitton's using the traditional Maasai colors, and what is distinctive of the Maasai, um, and that's why you know it's the Maasai, because they stand out even amongst African groups. They have these particular colors. So Louis Vuitton uses their colors, <coughs> uses their name, 
that is part of their cultural identity, their cultural heritage. And the only way they would be able to prevent that under using intellectual property laws, if they had been using those colors or using the name in, in a commercial context. Um, now, so technically there is no legal violation, but is there a disrespect there? Is there a reason for um, the company maybe to have approached it differently, thinking about just having respect for um, the Maasai? Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, no, no. So this is one of the things I really thought was especially interesting about your paper, which is that I, I feel like a lot of the intervention on that front and on the patent and trademark front to some degree as well, has sort of thought about sort of turnabout as fair play in intellectual property regimes and that we should think about creating or propertizing or creating kind of IP-like rights to control certain kinds of cultural signifiers or rights to control or claim um, intellectual property rights in certain circumstances. And I really... I, I felt like your paper suggests a different way of thinking about the problem that maybe there can be at least a kind of a partial private ordering <laughs> remedy as it were. And that, you know, rather than thinking about something like the, you know, the Ghani and Adinkra symbol or the Maasai cloth example is one where we need to allocate property rights to one person or another person, we should think about, the situation as one of kind of mutual respect and maybe even some sort of voluntary sort of wealth transfer um, uh, kind of accompanying that mutual respect. Is, is it, Am I characterizing your, your, your position correctly? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and part of that is due to the fact that there's been this, this these ongoing negotiations with about traditional knowledge and traditional cultural expressions for a long time and they're not moving forward because um, some of the western countries are just not interested i do i will say brian that i think it's not really um i'll just say it it's a bit hypocritical if you will because we're willing to uh have protection for new forms of intellectual property it's not as though the regime does not continue to expand. We lengthen the terms of protection. Uh, we've expanded, um, and there's protection for um, what is it? So for even they had moved to have protection for the uh, data that was generated for um, clinical trials and that kind of thing. Uh, we mm. have uh, protection for geographical indications in an international instrument. And I haven't even talked about geographical indications, but. Geographical indications last forever. There, there's something about the quality, reputation, or correct characteristic that is attributable to the geographic origin, um, and so those are, you know, very beneficial for European wines and cheeses and those kinds of products, and maybe for some developing country items too, as the developing countries get to know about it. But so the reality is, I, I, I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be a legal protection for these traditional cultural items are for intangible cultural, intangible cultural heritage. Where I'm going mm. in this paper is to say, well, you know, it's very difficult to move international law forward. It's slow. Let's think about looking at what the corporations can do as we um, work on, you know, on the other front, on the legal front. Um, and so because it's mostly corporations who are engaging in the behavior, that's not necessarily the great behavior. 
Um, there is, I think, room for a private ordering, as you put it. Um, you know, and when we look at things like the um, Convention on Biological Diversity and the the, the uh, access and benefit sharing uh, provisions, you know, some of these communities are looking for that mutual respect um, and sometimes sharing of the benefits that um, are rising from use of of whatever is their intangible cultural heritage. Yeah, indeed. Well, I'm certainly on board with the idea that intellectual property regimes are no stranger to hypocrisy. And it does seem like they often do a pretty good job of camouflaging it as well, especially in in the international context. And it, it, it seems like you're making a, a lot of great suggestions about how perhaps companies might be a little bit less hypocritical and avoid the sort of legitimately ascribed appearance of hypocrisy that comes along with some of these situations. I mean, and I think the thing is we can't blame the companies entirely because again, they're not the ones that are the parties to these international obligations. It's the States, it's the national governments, but who's benefiting, who's benefiting from harmonized intellectual property standards across the globe who wanted that? Corporations did. These big corporations mm. wanted it. And so you could even, I told you earlier, Brian, that I'm still working on this project and it's going to evolve. So this is, these are my initial thoughts, but I'm thinking about it in terms of what is that social contract between the corporation and society that allows the corporation to exist? And how does that relate to that social contract uh, when we're talking about intellectual property, right? The idea that you're getting something in exchange and you're giving something. And that's you know where this public benefit argument comes from, and so the corporations, as the beneficiaries, arguably have some obligations as well. I didn't even we didn't talk about corporations and their power and their wealth, the fact that they have wealth more wealth than some countries, and so even though they're not legally obligated, the whole CSR movement is based on the idea that these are major players. No, they don't, they're not states, but they're major players and we have to account for their behavior somehow. Um, so that's really where I'm coming at, uh, coming at this from. So Janet, it's been great talking to you about this. Um, and in closing, I wanted to ask you kind of a, a final question about sort of the bigger picture of the sort of idea that you're presenting here, which is that, you know, you present this in the context of international law. And I'm wondering if you think that a similar kind of framework might be helpful in thinking about different intellectual property regimes in a domestic sense as well. That's a great um, great way to finish the, <laughs> the interview. Um Here's the thing. It is relevant to the domestic context as well, but it's not um, as urgent a problem, I think, in the domestic context. And here's why. People can elect their leaders. If you don't like what they're doing, you throw them out of office, right? They're, you elect your leaders, they make policy, they make law, right? Um, in the international context, when we think about how the sausage is made, it's messy, there's compromise, um, but we don't, as citizens, it's hard to actually have your voice put in there and uh, countries that have less economic power who are marginal in the international trading system don't have a strong voice at the table and so it's harder for their citizens to um, have their needs addressed and recognized but I definitely think that this question of 
how corporations navigate and how they manage their intellectual property uh, is something that is applicable to the domestic context. It's probably just not um, with the same level of, of urgency. Um, and also, because I'm talking about human rights in the international human rights context, not every country has adopted or accepts these uh, human rights norms as being part of their domestic law, which is just an additional complicating factor. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jen. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.